0: Okay, Uh, it is August 23rd, right? Yeah. Okay, and we are with Judy Meyer, author in, oh, Judy (laughs) Meyers, that's okay, in Kalamazoo, Michigan, on the west side of Kalamazoo. So... um, Hi, Judy. Hi, Bonnie Joe, Good to see you. Thank you for being willing to talk to me on my podcast.
1: My pleasure. Oh, my goodness. What what can I say? Regular listener, first-time speaker?
0: (laughs) I know. I'm always surprised when anybody listens, but I'm happy. So um, it's really fun to talk to you because um, you and I know have some good friends in common. And so... Um, they have been talking a lot about what you are doing over here on the west side of Kalamazoo (laughs) and I live on the east side so I am very curious so I thought how lovely to just come and sit with you and and find out. I was delighted to hear from you. (laughs) And um, I'll say that I just started reading or should I say listening to a book, Refuge, mm-hmm. that is the first in your series, uh, is it is it called the uh, Trade Point Saga, Trade Point Saga. Yeah. and I heard somebody call it a space opera. Sure. Is, is that?
1: Yeah, I guess I would say it is character-oriented science fiction as opposed to military science fiction or hyper hyper scientific science fiction Um, this is just interesting characters who happen to be on an interstellar trading station. (laughs) Yes. And I am gripped at where I am. I am
0: about, I am, I, I am only about a fifth of the way into the first book and I can't believe what's happening. So yeah. And I, I do see that it is completely character driven that, all the trouble that has caught... Well, a lot of the trouble that is happening so far is happening because people
1: are who they are. Exactly. And My favorite kind of books to read as well as write are the ones where if you took any of five or six key characters out and replaced them with uh, you know someone else, the whole plot would veer off in a different direction. It's all about the interpersonal dynamics and how people bounce off of each other.
0: Yeah, well, it... What really amazes me, and I have written a couple novels. Yes, you have. <laughs> but I feel like <laughs> I, stories. I feel like I've just barely written those novels. Like, you know, the extent of my imagination might be. Well, my newest novel is about 400 pages long, and when I think about how, okay, I guess I should ask. How long the whole saga is, <laughs> pages-wise. Or maybe you don't even know.
1: That would depend on who you
0: ask. Okay. Whether
1: you're asking my collaborator and I, whether you're asking the publisher who brought out the first three books, <laughs> whether you're asking the man of the moon, who knows. Um, we <laughs> This particular trilogy refuge aftershock the Bereft, that were, pub- that, were published. that were published and that are available in hardcover paperback audiobook ebook um, are basically a prequel <laughs> Of course then there's a prequel to the prequel but we won't go into that <laughs> um, I, I have my, my collaborator and I have been friends now for nearly half a century which is kind of frightening. (laughs) Um, And one version or another of the epic broad screen plot line of this has been around in our heads for a long time. But basically a few years ago, more years than I thought, I think it was in 2015, so that's a day or two now, um, NaNoWriMo was coming up. Are you familiar with Nano? Yeah, n- National, National Novel Writing Month. Okay. The idea being you cast your fates to the wind, and from November 1st to November 30th, you try to create 50,000 words of fiction. And I was going to write something for my collaborator as a Christmas present. And I wanted it to be in the general realm of the bigger, larger story, but. I didn't want to step on the toes of anything that we were currently actively talking about and plotting and writing, so I thought, well, if I back up in time, that keeps me safe. So I backed up about 500 years. (laughs) This this is where it comes in handy to have very long-lived races that you're dealing with, not having to reinvent uh, the character wheel every time you turn around. And I wrote 60,000 words in that November and it was the, the kernel, the, the germ, the central core of what became refuge. Oh, wow. Um, but at the same time, I don't know if you're familiar with Patrick Rothfuss, he writes big, big, well, <laughs> I, I shouldn't emphasize how many because that's a sore spot with him. He wrote a book called Name of the Wind, big fat fantasy novel, hugely popular sold and has continued to sell like hotcakes. So then he wrote the sequel, and the sequel took a goodly amount of time for him to write it. And then his editor came back and said, I feel like you really need something more in this part of it. So he went back to the drawing board and wrote what I consider to be the best part of the book for that, and it eventually came out. That was probably, well, we've already had the 10th anniversary of the first book, and I think it took another three years for the next one. We are still waiting for book three, and I see no particular sign that we're going to live long enough to see it. He's gotten off too many side projects. He's prolific at showing up. But you at, are
0: not doing this. You are actually producing these book
1: after book after book. we we have the three. But the long and the short of why I dragged him into this is that he has been very charitable. Um, When the book, the first one, Name of the Wind, turned out to be hugely more successful than he expected and to go on selling, he started donating a certain percentage of what he made from it to... And I'm going to blank on the name now because it's not Habitat for Humanity, it's the international one. Oh, uh, the one that gives away goats and bees and Oh yes, I know that. Yeah. We'll think of the name. The Everybody goat.
0: who's listening will. Yes. Think of the name. Oh quite sure. Where it gives away, away all the yes. animals. Yeah. Right.
1: You know, so he has given by now several million dollars to them over time. Because at first it was just him and then His agent and his beta reader and his friends who were authors who had books published all began to contribute, and once a year this thing comes around. And it's gotten nothing but bigger and more popular. And sometimes they're simply selling an object. You can buy a signed copy of whatever book. Sometimes you're purchasing, and all the money goes to the charity. Um, Sometimes you can have a character named after you. And then they got into auctions, and the auctions were for goods and services, but mostly for services that only one was, you know, only one person was going to be the winner for that thing, the highest bidder. And his Rothfuss's agent, who is notoriously reclusive and hard to contact, and keeps big protective walls, said that for the highest bidder. He would read the first 50,000 words of a project and give you feedback. And I thought, (laughs) I'm old, I have money, I'm clever, I've got time, I can make this work. And sure enough, I was the high bidder. So I sent off the first 50,000 words to him. And that was in November, and I waited through December, and I waited through January and February and March. And in April, I took a trip to New York City to see Hamilton, when Lin-Manuel Miranda was still in it, and it was fabulous. It was the theater experience of my life. And while I was waiting in line outside the theater, I checked my phone, and this agent had finally gotten back to me with his feedback and to say, if I had more of it, he'd take a look. So I ended up being able to send another big chunk of it to him. Now, he did not, in the end, end up offering representation. I am represented now, but at the time was not. Um, but he gave us lots of good feedback, and it was it was very interesting and helpful. So I always kind of give a little tip of the cap wow. to he him. He actually
0: gave you feedback and yes. help you make it, yes. Made it was, better. Yes, it was
1: quite generous. Yeah. Wow, so,
0: well, that was a good start. Yes, so, but that was the part that you wrote, not the part
1: that you both wrote? Or that was. What he first saw was the part that I wrote, and then by the time he, it was months and months and months later that he finally got back to me, you know, from November till the following April, and by that time my collaborator and I had gone, yeah, yeah, I know we were working on stuff farther up the timeline, but let's go back and work on that. And so we did, and that eventually plotted out as this first Trade Point Saga three book okay and so that
0: so a lot of that you came up with in this burst Mm -hmm. of a and then and then you collaborated and when other people have talked about collaboration with me they're just talking about helping each other but you guys are talking about actually we're talking about collaborating yeah so it's actually and I should say that the book is written by somebody named J.J. Blacklock uh huh that's
1: because J for Judy J for Janie my maiden name is Blackwell, and her maiden name is Locke, L-O-C-K-E. So, J.J. J. Blacklock. It's a great name. It's very tough sounding. Well, there's still a little misogyny going on in science fiction from time to time, so having an androgynous <laughs> name didn't seem like the worst idea in the world. So,
0: how, I mean, when I think about my writing process, I can't imagine having to, I mean, I definitely need help on my <laughs> writing project. But having two people be... I just can't quite picture how that happens. Do you
1: work on different parts of it? It's partly process, and it's partly blind luck. The blind luck part being that she and I have incredibly similar writing styles. I can look back at things that we've written, and I can't tell you who wrote various parts of it. Normally, what we'll do... I don't know you want the whole you want the whole nine yards here yeah I how this well, I, down but I, I mean at
0: every l- stage are you working together at the stage of well, for plotting? one thing we've been friends for
1: half of forever, mm-hmm. you know two thirds of my life I've known her and been a good friend of hers, and for the last at least thirty years of that, we've collaborated just for our own pleasure, not for anything that we were trying to get published, just for our own entertainment. For many years, um, I lived out in California, and she was here, and so it was all very long distance. Um, but basically, cut to the end of the chase. What we do is once we have everything else lined up, and we know exactly where we think we want to go with it. Although there are always pleasant surprises around every corner. I mean when you say that, you mean the plot is right. laid out? Yeah, we okay. have we have you know racked out. Here is the skeleton. This is the book. You can't know everything. So that's your until initial you...
0: collaboration is working through the
1: plot. Well, like I say, it's it's a many-step thing. We'll look for something that really excites us, for an idea that we really want to explore and that we think has enough legs. From there, the first thing I do, whether it's a solo project of my own or whether it's something I'm collaborating with her on, is I open a document on my computer that is called Random Notes for that particular project. I think of it as a big mental bushel basket, and any and everything that occurs to me in the days, weeks, months, years to come goes into that bushel basket. And I set it up so that every new paragraph is numbered automatically. Because like right now, we're, we're reworking um, a, a totally separate, not connected to the Trade Point Saga book that we wrote, a, a young adult novel And it didn't quite work, so we just put it off to one side, and we came back to it after several years away. And we're in the final stages now of reimagining it, opening it up, doing many very different things with it. And so in its random notes document right now on my computer, if you work down numerically instead of by subject matter, you might find uh, the average high and low temperatures for the months in Wisconsin, You might find an entire backstory for the parent of one of the characters in the book that will Mm -hmm. probably, 99.3% of that will never show up in the book, but we needed to know it. Mm -hmm. Uh, You will find things in there about tarot cards. You will find all this weird stuff that comes up and it just, no filter, you know, just shut your internal editor up and just keep it somewhere because you think you'll remember and you won't. Or you'll put it on a post-it note or a scrap of paper, and you'll lose it. Or
0: even you will put it in another file that you're drafting, and it will...
1: Right. Can't find it. So, Random Notes, with the title of that project. Right now, by the time we got ready to contemplate, we think by the end of this month, Knockwood will be to a point of starting to write on the rework of this book. Right now, I think there are currently 143 items in the Random Notes um, the next thing from there is we talk about the plot points. What are the big things? Where does it start? Why does it start? You know what? Wait, let me just ask, yeah.
0: that random notes thing, though, you mm-hmm. may, even at any stage in working on it, go add another random note. Absolutely. Right? Okay.
1: And up at the top, under the title of the document, I keep track of, as of such and such a date, the last new note was number such and oh, so. Okay. Because otherwise... <laughs> How many days are you gonna lose sifting through? So we always know if we just want to see the newest stuff where to go, but obviously at at the early stage and the progressing stage, there's no rhyme and reason to it. It's just a bunch of stuff in that document and that gets solved part way through. Mm. So then we talk about plot points. What's the big thing that starts the book? Where do we think we might want the book to end? If we're feeling real lucky, punk, what's something big that happens in the middle <sighs> you know get some of that down just to give it a shape just so you begin to have a sense of beginning and end and kind of a tent pole in the middle a lot of people talk about three act structure three act structure drives me nuts what i do instead well it seems a misnomer to me it's really a four-act structure. They just cheat and don't call it what it is. Because if you look at anybody talking about a three-act structure, they talk about 25% for the first act and 25% for the third and act 50. and 50 And it's like, don't tell me 50% for the middle and then complain to me about your sagging middle. It's act one, act two, act three, act four. Just call it what it is. So we have much better luck doing that. So we'll set up documents or bulletin boards, all sorts of different things we'll do, where we try to look at each act as a piece of it that we want to figure. Where does it start and end? Where does it start and end? Are you familiar with a man named Doug Tenapple? I, don't, I could be pronouncing their last name wrong because I've seen it in print but never heard it said. He wrote and I think is still writing graphic novels for like middle grade and young adult, tons of them all over the Amazon with them. But he came up with the thing that, that 10 years ago, my niece Betsy Bird, who is a, a children's librarian and writer, um, mentioned and it has stood me in good stead ever since. And it's kind of what some other people call the snowflake method, but basically he says when he's trying to figure out a new project, he takes three index cards. He write and labels one of them beginning, one of them middle, one of them end. Obviously for me I would take four index cards <laughs> just because it bugs me. Um, and he tries to write just on one side of an index card what happens at the beginning, and then what happens in the middle, and then what happens at the end once he has that and he's kind of lived with it for a little while and feels like okay okay i can i can vote for that then he'll go and now he takes three cards for each of those three cards so for the beginning card the now beginning what's the beginning, the beginning middle <laughs> and end of the beginning the beginning middle and end of the middle the beginning you know and it and i only take it one more iteration beyond that you know so that i'm i'm ending up with basically nine cards that i'm I'm playing with. Once I have that, you can begin to see where your big gaping holes are. Another of the things that we put into the random notes is what are the recurring things? What are themes and threads and objects and places that we want to make sure show up throughout the book because we're going to need them down there at the end and if you haven't laid
0: them at the are you, beginning are you all doing this on on? are you sitting together doing some of this and
1: some of this by phone or some of this on Zoom some or? some some by phone some I usually am up in Grand Rapids at least once a month and we'll make a day of it you know I am going to get out of here crack a dawn drive up we spend the whole day and then I come back and then some of it we'll work on independently and just stay in touch with with emails um but basically and is the document
0: you both have access to the
1: document I'm kind of the archivist okay i end up doing most of the keeping track because what you don't want is is dueling documents yes so at the point that we have it broken out into four acts and we think we know the beginning middle and end of each of the acts then i go back through that random notes document and I sort through and I start figuring for each of those random notes items. What act does it go in? Does it apply to the whole book? Does it only apply to the beginning? Does it only apply to the end? Is it something that should recur and add those in? So now I've got an Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, Act 4, four documents under that title and it's getting fatter and fatter. It's got lots of little bullet points and good stuff in there. Once that's happened, we talk it all through again, walk through it from beginning to end, and if we're fairly happy, then what I'll do is go through and start to arbitrarily divide that up into what might be chapters. And again, I pick on number. This time it was 10. I think there'll be eh, roughly give or take 10 chapters per act. It can go longer, it can go shorter, and we're free to adjust that. But it gives you a little piece of stepping stone to stand on.
0: So per act, you've got 10 chapters. Yes. Yeah. And for a young adult book, it makes sense to have kind of shorter chapters.
1: Eh, so. it depends. There's so there an could awful be like lot 40, of leeway in YA. There, okay, so, okay. It, so you'll
0: have 40 chapters.
1: Yeah, that, okay. and again, that could shrink down in some places. It could expand okay. in places. But it keeps you from feeling like you're at sea and in a fog, and you can't find the shore anywhere. Mm-hmm. Okay, so once I've done that, then... I've got a document for that act that's divided up now into chapters and I start inserting the various things that I know are going to happen and some chapters will sit there naked. They have nothing in them because I don't know yet. that something important will happen there and we'll figure it out. And so you're just fleshing out the skeleton. It's like if you imagined it was a skeleton in an anthropology lab and you're taking clay and, and beginning to build it onto the form of that skeleton and build it out that way. Now I'm about to the point in real life here of going through and checking my list of what all those recurring themes and elements and events were supposed to be. For example, through three quarters of the book, there will be mandatory, he doesn't want him, the 17-year-old who's, who's the main character doesn't want him, but he, he is under orders that he needs to phone his father once a week. Okay. So you got to make sure as an author you don't forget the phone calls. Or if you skip over one, that there's a reason you skipped over it and there's hell to pay on the far end for having skipped the phone call and figure what's in those. How do they go? Depending on what else is happening in the chapter. Is this a good week to have to call dear old dad? Or is this a, oh, please just shoot me now. I don't want to have to talk to him about any of this stuff. So you put things like that in so you make sure that you're You've, you've played fair. If you've said there's going to be something that recurs, it recurs. And to do that, the next thing I found myself doing was going, okay, Google, give me calendar pages for August, September, October, November, December for the year 2025. Because arbitrarily, that's just and the one we picked. And you
0: need to refer to what day of the week it is. Well, right. And
1: Especially you know, the, the book starts in summer, but it's going to go on through nearly the end of December. So once school starts, day of the week really matters if you've got a 17-year-old as your main character. So yes, then you start making sure that everything is grounded in when it's happening. Um, Point of view. Point of view. We we wrote it originally just in Matt's point of view, the 17-year-old, and we wrote it, I don't know why, and I'll never do it again, in first in present tense. Well, Never go in there again. No, it makes me of, crazy. A uh, lot of writing
0: teachers encourage their students
1: to yeah, do no, present tense. No. So. Uh, and, and it seemed fine to us at the time, but when we went back after two years of leaving this book on the shelf and read it, we went much more comfortable with what we did with with the Trade Point Saga books, which is multiple points of view, past tense. That that's a good fit that that works well for us. So why reinvent the wheel? Why rock the boat? So and what um, is,
0: so? How much of the old version of it are you carrying? Are you pretty much <laughs> re- rewriting from
1: scratch? We have not. Each of us, maybe six months before we started to work on reimagining the book, went back and reread the old version. Have not looked at it since. Will not look at it until such time as we're actively writing this version and think, oh, wait, that's a pretty fact-based, neutral thing that was in such-and-so chapter. Let's go back and see if we can lift some of that and use it. But the characters themselves have undergone quite a sea change, so I don't expect there'll be any dialogue or anything extensive like that that we would even think about going back and lifting. Um, But once we, at the end of this month, hopefully next week, we're going to go through and we're going to feel good enough about the overall organization that we're going to feel like we can put our little toes in the water and tackle the first two or maybe even the first four chapters in Act 1. And what we do is we, we try not to let either person get too far out ahead. So things come in pairs. you know. So if she does Chapter 1, I'll do Chapter 2 or vice versa. We'll write those, and then we'll send them to each other, read them, and then make any changes and comments. Track changes is a wonderful thing for when you're collaborating with anybody. You can see every little thought there on the page. And then once that's all done and we're happy, then it comes back to me, who worked for many years as a freelance copy editor, and I will do a final edit just to make sure that things like comma preferences and that sort of thing are consistent throughout. Um, If I make any changes in that final edit, for example, one of my pet peeves in life, it just bears on me, is if the same word, especially if it's at all a distinctive word, is used a couple of times on the same page. Mm-mm-mm, no, don't want it. I mean, it's different if you're talking about the tractor. The tractor going to be the tractor. You can't call it much else, but a descriptive word. It's like, no, no, it's of rich language. There are many other ways. So if I find that there are spots we've done that, I'll go and I'll smooth those so out. So it's
0: real copy editing. You're doing fairly early in the stage. Oh, You're getting... we
1: both tend to write slowly but cleanly. Mm-hmm. When I get done writing something, if it's a project I'm doing on my own, one more pass, and I'm usually... Wow. Now, that's not true if it's a structural problem. Right. If I've, if I've gotten something wrong, then you got to go back to the drawing board. But if it's just in terms of it being clean enough, accurate enough, flowing enough, it's good. It's interesting
0: because all that work you're doing up front is mm-hmm. what, you know, because I'm the opposite kind of writer where I get through a draft and it's a disaster and then I go through it again and eventually it's better. But I think that work that you do up front...
1: So when you're collaborating, there's almost no way around it without mm-hmm. just creating a lot of frustration and a lot of lost time. What what we invest up front pays off on the far end in terms yeah. of, of the journey.
0: Yeah, and then that satisfaction of having, even after those, I mean, having those chapters come together pretty yep. nicely.
1: Yeah, once we have once, you know, I've written it, she's written hers, we've exchanged them, we've read them, we've commented, we've sent them back to the original author who then goes through and incorporates, you know, puts all those into practice, then it goes through me for that final filter, that brick is pretty well ready to be put into the wall. Now, when we get all done, we'll go back through the whole book with a keen eye and and see if everything matches up, but for the most part, not a problem.
0: Yeah, and I mean if there there could be a surprise thing that even as you're working later sure. you could say, Oh, it would have been better or whatever yeah. but you can do that very Just dis- I'm sure you'll have a note in your notes in your <laughs> random notes file. <laughs> wow. Oh. And so much of what you've done is in this collaborative mode. All yes. of the science fiction. Right. And um I'm kind of curious about your early career as a romance <laughs> writer. That was a long time back. And it's, well, except you were quite distinguished.
1: I mean, you won a pretty big award. It worked out well, yeah. Um, it was I was living in Sacramento, California at the time, and it was a time in the late 1980s, early 1990s, when... Category romance was really catching fire. It used to be, I'll give you the mini version here, Harlequin was known as the big publisher, but they were in England. Mills and Boone, which was, you know, Harlequin was part of Mills and Boone, and they hired Simon & Schuster to be their American distributor, and for many years that was very lucrative for both companies, and that worked out just fine. Except that eventually Simon and Schuster kind of went, <clears throat> these books are making a pile of money and they don't look that tough. And they launched Silhouette in direct competition with what Harlequin was doing. But eventually Harlequin had the last laugh. After many years of both the sil- and both publishers had multiple lines of these, you know, three, four, five, six, seven different lines of each. Each was a little different in length. Each was a little different in terms of how sexy or pure they were. Um, You know, were they, did they have a Western setting? Were they historical? Were they contemporary? And each line had a name, you know, Silhouette Desire, Harlequin Super Romance, and a set number of titles that would come out every month. Well, the first book that I sold, well, got got ahead of myself by a half step there. Harlequin had the last laugh. By the time Silhouette was really doing well, and it wasn't really hurting Harlequin any, they went, (laughs) and they bought Silhouette and kept it going as Silhouette ran their own competition (laughs) and most people in the readers were none the wiser but now it was all from the same but there were all these American authors who now had been writing for, for Silhouette who now were kind of dragged by the elbow into being Harlequin writers Harlequin contracts were really not negotiable unless you were Nora Roberts or one of the other really heavy hitters but it didn't matter a whole lot because they were such an entity, worldwide, that you made pretty good money regardless, because your book is going to come out all over the world, and it's going to be in half a dozen different languages, and they've got all of the promotion built in, so that was interesting. Silhouette had had a young adult line, Harlequin took it over along with all the others, eventually they phased it out. But what I didn't know at the time that I had written a proposal at the time when I was totally unpublished was that they had just made the decision, but nobody knew yet that they'd made the decision to go from publishing two titles a month in that line to four, which meant they were in a panic for product. Because doubling how many books you're putting out every month, every month, every month relentlessly takes a lot of lead-in. Well, What are my strong suits? I'm a copy editor. I can send you something that's got good characters and it's cleanly written. It doesn't need to be fixed and patched and fix the spelling and the punctuation. And and so they snapped that up like nobody's business because they knew they could just shove it into the pipeline. So that, that was an easy one. Um, That was the
0: first one that you had published.
1: That was the first one that I sold, yes. But in the meantime, I had written a short contemporary romance that I submitted to them, and which I also entered. The RWA is Romance Writers of America, the big whoopee whoop And I entered it in their unpublished author category, because at that point I hadn't sold the YA yet either, and it won in short contemporary romances. And one of the final round judges was Lisa Boyce of Harlequin, big, heavy mover and shaker, who got in touch with me afterwards to say, I really loved your book, and I can't make you an offer on it. And I went, uh, uh, why? And she went, because the hero is a voice actor, a radio voice actor. He's not, you know, a football star or a cowboy or a, somebody physical and macho. And I can't make my, my upper editors, my, my senior editors, understand that it's a good book and they should. So I'm sorry. And if that ever changes, I'll get back to you." And by gum, a year and a half later, she did. They'd moved on, she'd moved up, and she said, that book isn't still there." I was like, yeah, as a matter of fact, it's still sitting here like a rock. There's nowhere else to send it. And when it came out then as a published book, it was one of the six finalists in that category on, on the published short contemporary romances. Ah, so What a great story. But, you know, it's, it's a question of just the luck of the times. Now, were you a reader of romances at that time? <sighs> eh, not, not Heavily, mm-hmm. I, I was not. I was not the kind of, of romance reader who made me so happy as a romance writer. Yeah. <laughs> who basically doesn't matter whether you've got a name for yourself or not. They that the hardcore ones would go into the store. They knew what day of the month the new ones came out, and they would say, "I want all four of." you know, this line that I like, or the six of that line that I like. Because it was so
0: reliable, they knew what they were going to get. And so did you just see it as like, this is something I can write?
1: I had friends in the area who were more established writers than I was, who were writing either for Harlequin or for Silhouette. So that kind of drew me in. And then once I got started, characters are characters. (laughs) Once you've learned the, the expectations of the genre, I'm good. You know how how prescribed is it? How prescribed was it for writing back then in the late '80s, early '90s? Fairly. I mean, there were there were a lot of written and unwritten rules, but within that, you were pretty free to. I mean, my my first super romance, which was the the longer books um, that I did for them. Basically, <laughs> the reason they wanted it was called In the Cards. And it had uh, Sandor Polneshti was the, was the hero and he had split was an architect and had split off from his Romani relatives who were still very much leading the traditional gypsy life and they'd never had a gypsy as a hero before so they yes. thought that would be fun. But I mean, what aspect... Because each one of
0: those romances is very different. Mm -hmm. But what aspect of them is the same? Is it like the
1: length has to be as... Well, has... Oh, gosh. The length. (laughs) Ha, ha. Yes. The length is very tightly prescribed for the funniest reason in the world. I mean, it is set. You've got about mm, maybe, maybe 3,000 words one way or the other. And it's because they print so many books... That they, okay, the, the paperback book, you know, has, has cardstock that the cover is printed on. They buy the cardstock by the billions of bales. And if your book is too long or short, the cover won't fit. Now, how's that for a Not slap cause... in the face going? You want to be artistic? No, 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 no. This is a business. <laughs> can't send your book out if you put that extra chapter in and now we can't get the cover to wrap around it.
0: That's a funny reason.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, and, and clearly the whole point of their having different lines was that there were different sensuality levels for the lines. I mean, somebody who wants something sweet and pure does not want to be presented with, you know, graphic physicality. By the same token, somebody who's looking for something that's a little hot and sexy doesn't want to find out this is all we're at Minister Day Camp. Uh, you know, it's, so that had to fit the expectation of the line, but within the individual book, you had quite a lot of, and I, I always got in trouble. It's why I didn't go on writing for them. I like to write people who know people, people who have family and friends and townsfolk. And so I always had a Cecil B. DeMille cast of thousands and they really, well, I, I had a friend who wrote very successfully for them and who then also wrote very successfully, did women's fiction for um, HarperCollins. And she would have contracts for both. So she'd be you know, writing a women's fiction book, and then she'd go write a category romance that she was contracted for. And when she had to make the switch that direction from having worked for months on a women's fiction novel and then had to gear down to do the next category, she used to put an index card at the top of her computer monitor that said, he, she, he, she, he, she, damn it. And that's where I would run into problems. You know, my people had brothers and, and cousins and friends and neighbors, and there was just a whole lot more going on than just he, she. The he, she was there. It was always very pleasing to the readers, but it gave the editors hives that there were all these other people in there. It's like no, 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 no. You need to get out a little more. You know, it's it's more fun. If, <laughs> so that was
0: kind of what inspired you to write some of these other, in the other genres. It was a bit constricting,
1: yeah. yeah. Now, I had no problem with, with the sensuality level. That was fun. So it was but, fun to like veer between, from one to the other? Eh, or before... I, I, I guess, no. I more worked up the scale. I, my first book that they published of mine was a YA, which, of course, was squeaky clean. The next one was a short contemporary, and then the two super romances were expected to be fairly sensual. And then after that, I did a novella for Red Sage, where the whole point in the Red Sage anthologies was that these were going to be four different authors doing four unconnected novellas, but all of which were expected to be quite steamy.
0: Nice. Yeah, and that's actually considered erotica? or Yeah. Or, oh, nice. Yeah.
1: You know, so, I mean, it wasn't... It wasn't porn, yeah, but things got named.
0: Yes, how fun! Yeah, so you got to. I mean, there was quite a variety. You wrote quite a variety of stuff. Yeah. as as writing romance, even within under the umbrella of writing oh, romance. I,
1: I I was quirky, which tended to be, as I say, why the readers liked me and why I gave the editors hives. <laughs> the other super romance that I did for them um, had a heroine whose father was a college professor and had just passed away before the beginning of the book, and she had a little capuchin monkey that she was raising to aid people who were paraplegics. And there is a real organization in Boston that does this. And the problem is you can train the monkeys, but if they aren't socialized from the time they're tiny, 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 They're not going to work out well. So she had had Jezebel, as the monkey was named, had lived with them since it was this tiny little monkey. And now the time was coming where Jezebel was old enough that she was going to have to turn her in to be properly trained. And this was coming right on the heels of having lost her father. The, The hero in that book was based on a real person named Bob Leathers who designed playgrounds. That were community projects. You could not simply buy a Bob Leathers playground for your community. If you wanted a Bob Leathers playground in your community, you had to organize within the community and do everything from fundraising to being there on hand to help build it under his and his crew's direction. I mean, it was a whole multi month thing that you had to do. And so this was something that ends up being involved with. You know, so it's like, where did you? Two different Smithsonian articles that I had seen months apart. You know, one was about the organization in Boston that raised these monkeys, and the other was about the Bob Leathers playgrounds, and it was like, oh, those two would get along nicely. <laughs> yes. So it ended up just being, you know, peculiar.
0: Wow. So Smithsonian Magazine was yep. a good. Source oh, it was a great source for inspiration. Yes. Wow. So, so. That was your first, you call that, I think,
1: your first writing career. I yeah. think,
0: did you call it? Oh, first? yeah, okay. yeah.
1: It was, you know, over span of about 10 years, back in the late 80s into the 90s. And then my daughter got older, and things changed around. And for a number of years, I was writing for my own entertainment and writing things for my collaborator, my friend, who became my collaborator, to enjoy and vice versa, but not trying to get anything published, just Kind of bopping along happily, and then came 2015, where I decided to write a Christmas present for her for Nano, and <laughs> the Trade Point Saga was the result.
0: And so that that's the second part of your career has been all science fiction. Yes, I mean, yeah. I mean, it seems like there's plenty to write. Oh, I mean, no shortage. A, and I'm, you know, I'm thinking about what you're doing when you're writing science. And maybe you'll be able to tell me why why you think science fiction is this thing. But to me, I see it's world building in such a profound way. Like you're building the world from the ground up. Oh, yeah. Well,
1: I mean, with the Trade Point Saga, there are no humans. I know. I couldn't figure out who are the, are they Venons? Venons. Venons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Venons are sort of our, <laughs> well, the Venons are our human stand-ins during the Trade Point Saga. That is, they are the most humanoid in appearance, and certain certainly their behavior is very understandable on a human level, but so is the behavior of a lot of the other races that don't look anything like humans. So it was great fun and very freeing to take the Venons, who are a very... Mostly, for the Venons, the only Venons who traveled, the only Venons who left their homeworld, were those who had a specific talent for trading and for traveling the river, or they,
0: or for communication that aided in the well, flow. except
1: that, that that was yeah to a lesser degree. Okay. Um, but most when when they think of think of the original life on Old Venna as as if you had big city states. Or even bigger than that, think of, you know, half of America. Think of dividing South America up into two or three pieces, and then you've got Central America as a piece, and you divide Canada into several pieces. And each of those pieces is what the Venons call a house, more like what in Scotland you would call your clan. Mm -hmm. So you may be distantly related, but you all have the same last name You may live geographically quite far apart from each other, but central for many things. And basically with a Venom, until you are mature, until you are no longer considered a young person, you don't deal with anybody who isn't. It would be like if you you took a third of Canada, called that a house. You don't leave that third of Canada until you're quote-unquote an adult. And at that point, you begin to interact with the other venoms on that world. You may have met. But they seem
0: to—they do share language. I think across the planet.
1: Yeah, yeah, very much so. Well, again, many abilities that make that less of a problem. Right. They do seem to have mind speech. Yes. Yeah. yeah, Which is, you know, somewhat impacted by distance, but pretty robust. Um, They can also send.
0: Yeah, they seem to have distance is no problem. No, this. well,
1: distance is, is a qualified problem. Okay. Things are no fun if it's no problem. Okay. you got to have some limits. So, for example, there are two kinds of sending. You can sight send. If I can see into the next room and see where I want to end up, I can do that. Trickier, and kept for when you're older and cleverer at such things, if you've been someplace, like I know what my downstairs family room looks like, I could send myself there even though I can't see it from where I'm sitting upstairs. So that's trickier. And that can be done as you get older and more capable over bigger and bigger distances. And so that's how they they get around it. But there's a much smaller percentage of them who can, as they call it, travel the river. Of the Two, three dozen different races that visit Trade Point, this this interstellar trading station. They're the only ones that don't need a spaceship.
0: Yeah, they seem to be. They seem to be that nobody really thinks about that very much. Uh, the other no, people. except
1: that the Pret who run the space station and are very mechanically minded and very scientific find it endlessly maddening because you want to say that's not possible, but there they stand. It's like. But you're here. Okay.
0: Hmm. Well Well, how long did then did you work on the way this the the building of the world? Because I mean there's the building <laughs> of the I shouldn't say world, I should say the universe. I mean the building of of everywhere that they go. There's the building of that and then in addition and then there is the plot which is a completely additional thing. Mm-hmm. Did you how did how did you
1: Go well, ahead. I could really depress everybody by saying probably the fact that we've been friends for 30 years and talking about it for most of that time played like into it. You were talking
0: it. about this alternate universe? Basically,
1: well, yes and no. Basically what happened is I, I have had a friend that I've had, a different friend, that I've had since fourth grade. And we went through grade school, junior high, high school together, and I would write stories for her entertainment. She was an artist, still is. And would illustrate them for our mutual enjoyment Wow so I got to a point where I met my collaborator when I was in college and after I'd known her a while she was curious and so I let her see some of the more recent things that I'd been this time college age that I'd been writing for my friend my fourth grade friend and then life changed yet again after college, and I ended up moving out to California. And I remember very clearly being in my San Francisco apartment and talking to her one night on the phone, and her saying, I feel like such an ingrate. You keep sending me all this great stuff to read, and I never have anything to send back to you. I have this story that I kind of tell myself in my head when I'm drifting off to sleep at night. I guess I could try to write some of that down. I said, yeah, by all means. So, over the next couple of years. That was how it was. She would occasionally write stuffing down and send it my way and I would enjoy it. And then after a while, kind of imperceptibly, that merged into, can I come play on your playground? I like your playground. Can I come play over there? And it blossomed into this no, very wait. full collaboration.
0: No, wait a minute. So, so the, you had a no, you had a an alternate world that you were writing. Mm-mm. No,
1: no, I was stuff that I was writing was very,
0: oh, you know, okay.
1: here in the U.S., very normal, very you know, characters, yeah, fictional characters, but not a fictional world.
0: Yeah,
1: and what she was writing was uh, a little more fantastic. Yeah, well, th- this is to tell you the end before you've heard the beginning, but yeah, it kind of inside out because what she was imagining was an individual here in San Francisco you know the US who had this life and this career that he'd worked very hard for and was very successful at and he'd always known he was adopted and when his adoptive father dies he finds that he's not human and this was a st- th- was this So her her story was always about this young man here on Earth in the U.S. who suddenly is faced with, oh, my gosh, everything I've built my life on isn't true, except it is because it's my life, but I'm not who I thought I was and what's going to happen with that. But during all of that, at the beginning, everything that she had done with it, he was never in touch with this race that he was physically part of. So when you say there's prequels... It's... Like I say, the, the Trade Point Saga takes place about 500 years before some of the, the farther stuff. Wow. But because Venons go on for virtually forever. They can be killed if they're in an accident, if they're, you know, injured. Badly, yes, that can lead to their death. But, but the s- they don't die of old age.
0: But the same characters, yep. then, really can.
1: Well, and you end up with multiple generations within a house. You know, somebody may refer to themselves as being your fifth father. And what that means is like saying you're great-great-great-great-grandfather. You go, ooh, okay, that kind of turns my head inside out. So it it basically became our way of exploring because they do eventually find him. And then it's a question of they, because of things that happen in the Trade Point saga, they've had a big blow to the number of Venoms who who currently exist. And so it
0: sounds like together
1: you built this back world.
0: You built Mm -hmm. the larger world of which... This ma-
1: man who was right. not human. Yep, there's a like, whole center part which is a lot of what we worked on over the years. That takes place in Washington D.C. and New York and San Francisco and you know, and he's p- can pass visually for human. Few anomalies. A little taller than norm. Skin tone, little kind of always like he's got a slight suntan, but. In terms of how he looks, yeah. Now, he doesn't cope real well with anything that breaks the integrity of his skin. You, you you know, give a venom, an injection, you have them cut themselves. You got an unhappy camper on your hands. Blood pressure is going to plummet. They're going to be lightheaded and sick to their stomach. And so little things like that. But again, nothing that couldn't be explained away. And his adoptive parents.
0: So what Makes me wonder, is this file called Random Notes
1: for Mm -hmm. this whole thing
0: must be at this point about 12,000 pages long? Well, let's
1: just say that (laughs) Random Notes is a more recent thing. We were doing this when we were young and formless, and I probably have, because we lived on opposite sides of the country for so long, we would tape our phone calls. Oh my goodness, that's great. I have an archive of cassette tapes. Um there were canvas or plastic zip cases to store cassette f- called case logic was, was the company that made them. State of the art, great stuff. And they would hold sixty cassettes. You know, thirty on top, then flip it over and thirty on the bottom. I probably <laughs> and originally we used sixty minute cassettes, but pretty soon they were ninety minute cassettes. I probably have between 15 and 20 case logic <laughs> cases of tapes that we have made. Now, the problem with that is that's great while you're doing it, but they're only as good as how well they're labeled.
0: Yeah.
1: And if you imagine the label on a cassette tape, there's just, not much room. No. Do any, you put any, a, any you'd put a date. A, well, and unfortunately... We got lazy at some point, and that's exactly what happened, Uh. is I'll have many, many tapes that say, like, 97-310. Now, what that means is that in 1997, we made over 300 tapes. So, I have been monitoring those recently, going through to see what's where. And they have been a freaking goldmine, but they have been the eeriest thing because I'll listen to us and sometimes we're just talking out a story issue or a problem. or are exploring a new idea. But often, we would these are well-established characters in our heads by now. We would take a situation that we knew was coming up where two characters were going to be in conflict. She would take one, and I would take the other, and we would role play. And it might be Two, three, four 90 minute tapes in a row of us just talking through as those characters. And if you can, it didn't matter what we'd originally thought would happen. If one character playing by the rules can convince the other one, that plot's going to go the other way. But listening to them, because in many cases these were made, you know, 10, 20 years ago, I haven't listened to them since listening to them now and going, oh, that's really insightful. Oh, wait, that's me. Or that's her. I have no memory of ever hearing that, which is frightening. So this time through, I've been taking cliff notes and just going, yeah, because given the success of the Trade Point saga, Refuge, Aftershock, The Bereft, it's now feasible that what used to just be fun and games for us could actually be put into a publishable form.
0: Now, this okay. So the publisher who published the first three, mm-hmm. which that's the these are the ones that take place at Trade Point, are mm-hmm. or, or cycle around. Right. But the story moves on. Right. And our is the same publisher
1: interested? No. Okay. This it got very frustrating. Very small publisher, basically two bros, you know, two guys doing it and. They published the first three, and they told us after the first three came out that they were not interested in 4, 5, and 6. Uh, it was a three-book contract for the first three. And so, again, we've been writing them for decades, whether they were published or not. So, we so just, you have 4, 5, and 6. Uh, actually, 4 is completely written. Okay. 5 is completely Plod. plotted out. Okay. 6, we have, you know, the rough notion but they aren't. Interested, except that when the books continued to sell well, they did come around and say, "Well, we'd offer you a contract for four, five and six, but we would release all three of them at the same time, and we would need them in a big hurry, like soon, 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 and we would only bring them out as ebooks. After having hardcover, soft cover, ebook and audiobook for the first ones, we went, "Thank you, but no." Because on the flip side, once these books have calmed down a little more and are generating less income, we are in it's in our contract that once they generate less than a certain dollar amount in a calendar year, the rights come back to us.
0: They okay, so they don't they're not offering you the rights back
1: until you get it. Right, contractually, okay. you know, that's that's okay. in there. But we don't see that as being a terribly distant goal.
0: But would you need those three back, do you think, to go forward and have four, five, and
1: six published? Well, (laughs) there are two completely separate tracks there. One track is whether we would go ahead with the Trade Point Saga and have four, five, and six published. Um, Initially, when they said they didn't want to do four, five, and six, they said they would do four. And we went, no, because Book three of these three brings it to not an ending ending, but a stasis point, a, a, a decent rounding out the story point. Four, by its very nature of being the first book of the next trilogy, leaves things with everything hitting the fan. And no, we're not going to do that to the readers and leave them all betwixt in between with no guarantee that five and six would ever see the light of day. So one option would be to do something with four, five, and six, The other option is to do something with, like we've just been talking, with this character who is Venon, who is a distant relation of these, who's here on Earth. Start that up as a whole new thing, which will make this a background interest, but people won't have to have read it to be involved with what's happening there. And all I need to do is live to be 150. But you, it sounds like you will eventually have the 4, 5, and 6. It's just a, you're not sure when. Eh, it's, it's tricky because I'd like to. But by the same token, how do you, who do you think is going to do 4, 5, and 6? Nobody is going to want to reissue 1, 2, and 3. They've already been out there in the world. So it's tricky. I mean, it's it's a possibility that we might do something with four, five, and six, especially with four already completely written and five all plotted out, and self-publish them and offer them and the first three through our website. And in the meantime, perhaps go ahead with this other. So we'll see.
0: Yeah, and then it is possible. But, I mean, it's boy, you're really thick. Yeah, you're really... I
1: need to live to be 150. Yeah. After all, they're cheating us. We've only been at this for 35 years. (laughs) Why should we be done? Yeah.
0: That is amazing.
1: Well, you have a different situation from
0: most of the writers I know. Yeah. Yeah. You have no end of material. No
1: end of material. And the good news is it endlessly entertains us, whether it ever goes an inch farther in the public world. We have had more fun over the decades, and it has been decades that we've been doing this. I have computer documents, you know, to choke a horse, that are all written up actual scenes. I have the writing prompts that I have done for a number of years where it's just like anybody else's writing prompts that you find a list of somewhere. I mean, some of the ones were quotes like, a pair of shoes, or myself so fragile, or write about a letter. But the trick was that I would always challenge myself to write that prompt about some facet of these stories. Whether it was on Trade Point, whether it was in San Francisco with the, the, the Venon character who just found out he's not human, whether it's far in the future when the Venons finally find him and take him there. Any of that was fair game as a canvas for that writing prompt, for the space of that two and, pages.
0: And so those might go into some various file of random...
1: Well, at the very least, what I'm doing in my spare time, my copious free time here, is I'm going back through these old writing prompts, which I'm not currently doing, but which I had I wrote for more years than I thought I did when I went back and tried to check them out, and trying to corral them into chronological order. Because with the writing prompts, I could go through 10 pages of the writing prompts and be in 10 totally different places over this multi-multi, you know, hundred-year, multi-hundred-year canvas. So that gets a little disorienting for anybody. So but me. you
0: have, in, in your brain, you have... The whole span.
1: Know where it starts, know where it ends, Yeah.
0: Yeah, and you have and a sense of a much that happens. Oh,
1: in whole between. rafts of it that are either written or have been extensively explored on the tapes, and then you're into, you know, dragons live here, you're, you're, you know. That's,
0: I mean, it seems like it's almost that a whole bunch of your life has taken place...
1: In an alternate universe. Yes, and it has been delightful. Except that most of that has not been in the alternate universe, or fairly little. It's been with this character who lives in a very real, recognizable United States. Oh, okay. But but, an alternate,
0: I mean, it's an alternate life. Oh, fictional, yes. Oh, yeah. So the alternate universe part of it is only a part of it. Whereas (laughs) a lot of it, like you could see the, let's say a trilogy of books that take place you're saying that take place right in the United States a recognizable United States yep. but he's got a difference right so three
1: of those Which books could he knows but now that his adoptive his adoptive mother died very early in his life now that his adoptive father is dead almost no one else knows wow. two people but no, and other than that, it's. And you
0: and your collaborator.
1: Yep, and my collaborator <laughs> and I. And, and again, it's the sort of thing where if it never goes an inch farther, we have had a heck of a ride. We've had more fun out of this over the decades. And. That is so
0: beautiful to hear because I think, as you know, many writers are very connected to the publishing. Mm-hmm. The world of publishing. Yeah. And and I know you are as well. You're committed to publishing when you can. But it sounds like you take Not such... Not the
1: end-all be-all. Yeah, you take such pleasure well, in Well, I that. was grateful that I had the romance books way back in the late 80s, early 90s, because it kind of got me past the romance of thinking, I absolutely have to publish. I was uh-huh. like, yeah, okay, been there, done that. It was nice. The money was nice. It didn't make me a millionaire. It didn't make me deliriously happy. There were ups and downs and ins and outs. But the writing is always a delight. And if you're enjoying what you're writing, and especially if you're fortunate enough to have a collaborator so that you have a built-in audience who's eager for whatever you write and vice versa, it's a heck of a deal. That is really beautiful. Because, you know, I think I've talked, I feel
0: like I've talked to a lot of students about you know, students and my fellow writers, and just trying to puzzle out why are we doing this? Mm-hmm. Why are we spending? You know, what actually are we doing as writers? Because more people than ever want to be writers. I mean, don't you find when people find out that you're a writer, you know, it's
1: a there are a whole lot of myths floating around out there. <laughs> people have everybody has their own personal definition of what they think it means to be a writer, and for me, it from second third grade on it has just meant telling stories to myself and then I got lucky enough to find somebody else who wanted me to tell the stories to them and they would tell different ones back to me and then we told the same ones and so even even I mean so the telling of it is joyful for yes. you the telling but
0: if you were a person alone with no one to communicate with that do you think it's I mean it's
1: hard to know because yeah. I've known her so long you know met her in college and I'm now 71 It's been a day or two. (laughs) So for a long, and then before that, my friend from fourth grade who read what I wrote. So I've had at least one special person who was there as built-in audience willing to take what I wrote and comment on it and discuss it with me. And I've been very lucky.
0: Yeah, it's fun. It's like writing as in a sense. It almost sounds like it also created and furthered the friendship. Oh, absolutely. You know.
1: Oh yeah, because there in both of those friendships, we have been at various times a continent away from each other for years on end, and it's really difficult to maintain a friendship if there's nothing ongoing, nothing new that you have in common. If all you have in common is nostalgia, that's got a shelf life. With this, we're always on to the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing, and you could mail it, you could email it, you could do it over the phone.
0: It's so, it's really beautiful. That, I mean, it almost makes me wonder, the people who are hungering, you know, the people who are, let's say, haven't been published very much, and they're hungering for that publication, You almost wonder if what they're really hungry for is friendship.
1: (laughs) Well, what they need is they need a literary twin. Mm -hmm. They need somebody. I mean, it's possible to do it where it's pure audience. You produce, they read. But that's, you know, one-way street is never as as good. If you can find somebody who is going to produce things that you then are producing and you're changing back and forth, there's an energy to that that's very nurturing
0: is amazing. I'm wondering about your family because you and Susan are both a large portion of your life is
1: devoted to writing. I mean (laughs) And yet
0: she can't be more different. No,
1: she writes poetry, she cannot bear tension. Whereas for many years, <laughs> I I and Jimmy, That is a
0: curiosity of, yep, yep, of Susan. My, my
1: collaborator and I, for many years, wore what's known as a Decatur ring, which was based on a friendship ring that Stephen Decatur had back in the Civil War days. Um, and inside it, we had engraved C equals I for conflict equals interest. <laughs> if nothing's wrong, nothing's happening. And if nothing's happening, people don't want to read it. You've got to stir that pot. <laughs> I know,
0: isn't it funny? People do ask you, like, why? Well, people ask me, why? Why do you write about such troubles? And uh-huh. I'm like, well, why are
1: you so mean to your characters? <laughs> because it keeps you on the edge of your chair, wanting to turn the page. <laughs>
0: and I think about like the the quality. I mean, Susan's writing poetry, and I've read, you know, she's occasionally has written prose, but I mean, mostly poetry, and. I mean, you're both wonderful writers, but even your writing styles couldn't be more yeah. different. Yeah. And then you have a niece, who, Susan's daughter, Betsy Ramsey
1: Bird. Right. And is it Betsy Bird? Betsy, Betsy Ramsey, Ramsey Bird. Bird. Yes. And she's yet another kind yes, of writer. Yes, she has published picture books. She has published a wonderful middle grade novel called Long Road to the Circus that was on the New York Times list. And now she has a new picture book that she has sold that will be coming out, I think, maybe next year. Maybe not till the year after those things take time. So some
0: desire to communicate is in... Some desire to write is in this family. (laughs) Just entertain. (laughs) Entertain (laughs) ourselves, at the very least. I know. It does seem like entertaining... I mean, for you, you actually do
1: take great pleasure. Oh, I always think back to Emily Dickinson saying, no one could ever punish a Dickinson by shutting her up alone. <laughs> it's like, put me in a room, tell me I've, that the COVID is out there and I have to hide for two years. Fine, I'm happy, I'm just working away here. Oh, uh, Well,
0: one, one more thing, I'm, when I think about science fiction, I don't, I don't know, I haven't, I haven't read as much lately as I used to but i always thought that science fiction gave us a unique opportunity to philosophize yep. in a way to an extent that, i mean that, for
1: example what i've done in what we've done in the trade point saga is taken this young woman who has led a very sheltered life very even within her own world she led a very sheltered life and suddenly is catapulted into having to deal with cope with this interstellar trading station where there are anywhere from half a dozen to several dozen different races who look totally different, speak different languages, have different customs, and she's expected to rise to the occasion and (laughs) cope. And watching her do that and grow within it was a lot of the fun.
0: Yeah, and I know you had fun inventing some of those races of Creatures, because they were really fun. I mean, just the ones that I've seen so far, I could just... Is this on the website, you mean? No, I mean, oh. in what I've read so yes. far... It's just so Well, there are
1: visuals fun. of many of them on the website. Oh, there are? Oh, yep. okay. okay. If anybody's interested. Yeah, actually,
0: say what the website it's, is.
1: It's just, you know, www. and then our pen name, JJ Blacklock, all lowercase, no spaces. And so, the lock
0: has an E on And it, the
1: lock right. has an E on the end. So jjblacklocke.com. Go there. There's a menu button up in the upper right. Or if you scroll down on the home page, it will let you... Um, by just putting in your email address and your, your preferred type of ebook, you can get a little six chapter prequel that shows you our, our main character, Greton, young young woman, from the time she's a toddler up through the evening before they leave for Trade Point at the beginning of Refuge. Oh, where she has her night with her chosen one. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So you got to use a little of your romance experience maybe. Well, yes and no, oh. in a way, because with a villain. That's predestined. There is only one perfect person for you, preordained by the power, and when you are mature enough and you meet them, you both know it. So there's no courting. <laughs> you know, it's, I mean, only after the fact. It, it's sort of the, the perfect situation because it is guaranteed, and it has played out through the ages, that they will think you are the most perfect person ever. And you will think they are the most perfect person ever. Well, and you will a, find each other endlessly fascinating. That's lovely. Yeah. <laughs> but it cuts out all of the, the flirtation and the will he, won't he, and oh, I have three young men interested in me. No, there's none of that.
0: Well, if you're going to live forever, though, There you go.
1: You know, yeah. you
0: don't necessarily want all that Yeah drama so yes
1: and each of the races on trade point has their own societal mores and customs and often those clash head-on so it's an interesting microcosm well judy this is so interesting (laughs) i can't believe it thank you
0: so much for talking to me Do you want to say any other thing before we go?
1: Gosh, no, I think I've used up (laughs) all my ball mo here with the uh, the Dickinson quote.
0: (laughs) Oh, I know that I could talk to you for hours more, so I'll I'll do that, but not on this
1: podcast. Well, well, if if we ever get around to that, maybe we'll play around with the writing prompts.
0: (laughs) Yes, that sounds good.
1: Well, thank you. It's been a
0: pleasure. All right, bye-bye.